This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 501, and you're listening to The Daniel Glass Show only on Drummer's Resource. This is it, right here. Uh-huh. Then you gotta add some of the little tricks. Ah, ah, you'll be swinging. Uh-huh. Right. It's The Daniel Glass Show on Drummer's Resource, offering a deeper look into Daniel's unique take on music, drumming, and life. Philosophy, motivation, musical deconstructions, and conversations with influential voices in the music industry. Hey everybody, it is Daniel Glass. I want to welcome you back to another episode of the Daniel Glass Show right here on Drummer's Resource. And today, my brain is a little fried. Um... I just got back about a week ago from an incredible 10-day trip to Russia. My wife and I went over there. I had several clinics that I did and a few gigs, hung with a lot of amazing Russian musicians and um, did some great teaching, did some really cool interviews that will be in Russian. So, um, you know, just a chance to, you know, commune with a different, different culture that's always an amazing experience, and we had we had an, just an, an incredible trip. I'll talk a little bit more about that, hopefully, um, in upcoming podcasts about my experience experiences there, and hopefully, you saw some of the things I posted on social media, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but today, I want to focus on a slightly different topic and something that you know I think about a lot, which is uh, this this term swing. You know, what does it mean to swing or to play swing or to be swinging, um, you know, it's a, it's an interesting term and it's something I talk about a lot. And I think people tend to associate this word swing with jazz, but it really is something that every drummer should get hip to and learn more about. And, you know, a lot of people talk about it in very vague terms, just like the term pocket, which kind of irks me. Everybody talks about, yeah, you got to get in the pocket and you got to swing and you got to make it swing. And it's, you know, it doesn't feel swinging. And a lot of times these, these terms are just very vague and a lot of drummers hear about them and want to achieve them, these feels, but they don't know how to get there. And um, so I'm going to talk about the word swing in a variety of ways today. I'm going to look a little bit at the history of where it comes from and what it means, and also why it's important for all of us to understand something about swing or get our playing, our drumming, to be able to swing to a certain degree, because swing is not just for jazz drummers, kids. That's point number one. (laughs) Uh, It can behoove all of us, no matter what style of music that we play, and I literally mean no matter what style of music, and I'll give you some examples. Um... So, and, and then I'm also, you know, going to get into some specifics about the four limbs and the historical evolution of the four limbs, how each of them evolved, what their job was, and how understanding that can help us to play better, swing better, have a better feel. So that's really what we're going to get in, what we're going to talk about today. So let's start by just looking at the word swing and what exactly does it mean, because... It's, I think people have a, an intuitive gut level 
thought about it or they could identify it, but they really don't necessarily know what it means. And it's kind of a hard thing to identify. So uh, at least in, in in the jazz setting, which is where it comes from, swing timing or swing feel often refers to a specific rhythm or a way of notating a rhythm, which essentially the way I look at it as it's it's the first and the third beat of 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 a triplet grouping uh and you consider the first beat to be long and the last beat to be short so you have sort of one triplet two triplet three triplet four triplet one let two let three right we would call that a shuffle and then if you make that first note equal double in value to the last note you have long short long short long da 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 right so this is a shuffle and jazz musicians specifically even before jazz, but African-American musicians, this is kind of what they brought to the picture, their interpretation of European rhythms that they had to contend with when they were brought from Africa. And I've, I've talked about all these concepts before in previous podcasts. Um, but the idea of swing as it applies, that that's sort of what the swing feel is. And for those of you who have studied jazz, we, we know about what we call swung eighths, which means that you learn how to read written eighth notes, you know, written as regular eighth notes. You interpret them in a particular way so that they you, you read them as if they are part of a shuffle. Um, so we call those swung eighth notes. And swung eighth notes are, you know, literally the vocabulary of jazz and blues and many, many other styles uh, that were popular music up until rock and roll really kind of flattened out that eighth note and sort of straight eighth notes became more of the standard. But in a broader sense, swinging eventually came to be used to describe any rhythm with an off-kilter group. But when the term swing first came about, that was in the 1930s, and they literally named an entire era, the swing era, after this swing feel, because it was so dominant by that point in the 1930s that all these bands were using it. So, you know, is swing a noun, a swing band? Is it an adjective, meaning something really swings? Well, I guess that's a verb, but it has a like a swing and feel, I suppose you could say. Um, but you can make something swing. You can swing something, so it's also a verb. So the word has all these kind of different meanings, and um, there's a famous Artie Shaw quote that I like to read, which he says, he says, he, Artie Shaw, by the way, is a famous, one of the, one of the great swing band leaders of that era. But he says, swing is an adjective or a verb, not a noun. All jazz musicians should swing, but there's no such thing as a swing band in music. Well, kind of wishful thinking because now we think of the 1930s as the swing era. So noun. Anyway, I'm I'm <laughs> uh, uh, getting in the weeds with all this stuff, but the important point is that swing is all around us. It has been all around us for a long time. It it has this off kilter groove, um, and it it creates kind of an irregular feel. This sort of long, short, long, short, long, short, long, uh, and it's great for dancing. Or you know, it was the dominant. Uh, subdivision or way that people felt dance music again up until rock and roll um and it's 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 an important thing it's also something that's very hard to achieve for those of you who have tried to play a shuffle pattern da, 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 or a jazz ride cymbal pattern ding ding da, ding ding da, ding you realize quite quickly that you can't force it you can't make it happen 
Um, otherwise it sounds stiff and it doesn't have that natural bouncy feel. So a lot of the, of the things that I work with with my students and when people come to my jazz intensive here in New York City, um, and just getting drummers to understand more about is, is sort of the heart of this pulse and this feel and the way that the music can move or should move if, if we want to quote unquote swing. Um, and of course, the term swing is mainly used in reference to what we do as drummers, but any kind of instrumentalist, um, if they play notes in that swinging manner, uh, we could say that they are swinging or they're not swinging. Um, but swing is not only something related to jazz. And there's many numerous we- reasons why you should learn more about it, even if you don't play jazz or play swing music or play blues music or shuffles. First of all, and again, I've talked about this. I did a whole podcast about classic styles of music and uh, five reasons why we should learn classic styles of music. And I talk about how um, it is, it, you know, if you are a fan of the Beatles or you play music by the Beatles or uh, by the, you know, the Stones or Black Sabbath or, uh, you know, Led Zeppelin, all of the drummers that created this music came up in a time when swing was the dominant form of pulse or the dominant subdivision, this shuffly subdivision. So they all learned to play that way. That was how their idols, you know, played. And therefore, they brought a certain amount of that kind of uh, feel to their music, even if they were playing straight eighth notes. So that's the reason if you want to sound like Ringo Starr, if you want to sound like Charlie Watts, you want to sound like John Bonham, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that's, you know, a great reason to learn how to swing. And even into the 70s, um, you know, great classic rock bands had this kind of swing and feel to it. So I think a lot of people today are raised on, you know, drum machines and they're they are very, very good at dividing up straight eights and playing perfectly to a click. But then they go to try to play that, you know, those earlier styles of music. And by earlier, I mean 70s classic rock, even 80s classic rock. Uh, And, or, you know, hip hop, for example. And it just doesn't come out sounding right. Um, Interestingly, the the discussion of you know more modern styles of music that involve drum machines we still think about swing so um the lin drum uh which was first introduced the the uh by roger lin back in 1979 it was sort of the first real drum machine going all the way back to 79 um well earlier than that but the 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 lm1 drum computer from Roger Lynn in 1979 was the first one that actually had a swing function on it. And what Lynn realized is that he could approximate the effect of a human drummer playing in swing time by quantizing each drum beat to the nearest step and then delaying the playback of every other step in the sequencer. So this effect was more useful um, for more than just imitating swing style beats um, you could adjust the quantization and most importantly and this is actually i'm quoting now an article that i read a very interesting article talking about the evolution of the swing field in in programming what it said is 
adding, and by the way, I'll put a link to that article in the show notes uh, of, uh, of, this, of this podcast, but adding swing to a drumbeat or to melodic elements can introduce a more human feel to a pattern. But just as importantly, even the smallest amount of swing can enhance a groove in a uniquely and inexplicably appealing way. And I think that nails it. You know, why is it that even with programmers, they're experimenting with the amount of swing they want to put in a groove, how laid back they want to make it, uh, so that it can imitate a human feel and enhance a groove in a uniquely and inexplicably appealing way. If you listen to a lot of modern hip-hop, I was just listening to Childish Gambino the other day, uh, The Roots, you know, all all of this sort of modern cutting-edge hip-hop that uses a lot of programming is still trying to capture the human essence of swing and what makes that special because it has an effect and an impact on people. So, I, I want to talk a little bit more about sort of the role of the four limbs, as I mentioned, and how we can, by understanding more about the role of each limb historically, how we can uh, begin to apply that to make our drumming have more swing in it, whether we're a rock drummer or jazz drummer uh, you know, or whatever kind of drummer that you are. And I, I know that, you know, some of you have been listening to me for a while or have seen my clinics or have studied with me. Uh, I'm talking about these topics a lot, but I think it's really, really important that people understand that the, the power of swing and the pulse uh, really, you know, not only will help you connect with people, but will make you employable. I use this term all the time. My goal is to make you, my dear listener, more employable in whatever it is that you're doing as a drummer or a musician. Um, Even if you're not wanting to be a professional drummer, trying to help you to to push you towards those goals where people are going to look at you and say, hey, I want this drummer for whatever it is that I'm doing. Um, Or I want to play with this drummer because this drummer has a great feel. This drummer is satisfying the job of you know what is our drum what is our job satisfying that having such a deep groove speaking through your drumming so much that you connect without words and you can move an entire group of people from point A to point B whether it's a band whether it's a marching band whether it's a rock band whether it's a, a metal band or you're trying to get an audience to dance um, that that you don't have to speak, that the power of your drumming, the depth and the quality and the clarity of your groove, the articulation of your groove moves people. And they don't know why, they just suddenly put down what they're doing and they focus on what you're doing. And it's not easy to get to this depth with our groove. It is not easy. It is, you know, just because we learn to get our arms and legs to do stuff, it does not mean that we are going to be able to affect people at that level that we need to. Um, it's something that unfortunately, you know, we take for granted. We learn some, some patterns and we go, okay, I can play a beat. Great. I can play a groove. Cool. And now let me add more stuff to it and let me add, you know, more complex bass drum patterns and let me add hi-hat things and let me add fills. And within a very short amount of time, the, the basic core of what we were trying to communicate is lost amongst all this extra stuff. And that's when, you know, we're not swinging. We're not getting our message out to, to, the, to, to, to our audience, whoever our audience is. Okay, so let's talk about the four limbs. 
Um, I've talked quite a bit about the first limb I'm going to talk about, which is the, I guess you could say, the, the main timekeeping limb. And generally, if you're right-handed, it's your right hand. So whether you're playing on the hi-hat or the ride cymbal, that's the first limb that's keeping the time. Uh, if you're left-handed, usually it's your left hand, although these rules don't apply to everybody, but I'm just you know using generalities across the board. And when it comes to timekeeping, I actually did an entire podcast about this particular limb and the history and evolution of it, um, which is understanding pulse and specifically um, the throw-up exercise, which is a pulse exercise that I teach all my students that, to me, is kind of the fundamental of everything we do as drummers. If we can really get a handle on this, not only are we going to be well on the way to communicating with our audience, but we are going to be following in the historical tradition of where our music comes from. I think a lot of times we just learn beats, we learn a style. We have absolutely no idea of context. Where does this come from? Or why do we do what we do? Why is it important, say, in jazz that the hi-hat plays on two and four? Why is it important in rock that the, you know, how the eighth notes feel and that we spend time working on the eighth notes on the hi-hat or the ride cymbal before we rush into a bunch of other stuff? So, super quick, I'm going to, I'm going to, um, I'll, I'll put the link to that podcast. That Again, that podcast is called Understanding Pulse, the Throw-Up Exercise. It's episode 355, 355 of Drummer's Resource. And you can find it either on my podcast page on my website, or um, you can go to Drummer's Resource and, and punch in episode 355, or punch in my name, or punch in the Throw-Up Exercise. Yes, and it is Throw-Up Exercise. So, just to, to to very quickly recap what's going on with this limb, which I think, even though in rock we tend to think of the kick and the snare as being very important, and what we're playing there as very important, and it is, this limb, the 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 main timekeeping limb, the right hand on the hi hat or the right hand on the ride cymbal, um, keeping those eighth notes, or in jazz keeping those quarter notes or that shuffle or that jazz ride pattern. This is the this is the hand that is the underrated, underestimated hand, that if we can really get this one together, it actually will propel us in the way that comes from the evolution of of music. So, super quick historical time here. Um, Of course, our country has this sort of dark spot, dark stain on its past, which, of course, is slavery. Slavery is about the interaction of African and European Um, you know, Africans were brought here against their will. Everything was taken from them, their music, their clothing, their language, their drums, obviously. Um, And they were forced to use, at least in terms of, you know, they were forced to take on all of their slave masters, uh, uh, these, these cultural elements. So they had to speak, you know, the language of the slave master. They had to, um, play the music and the instruments of the slave master, follow the musical rules, had to sing in the slave master's language, etc., etc., etc. And although that was a terrible thing, um, the silver lining, I suppose you could say, if we're thinking in a long term, is that once African, once the Civil War was fought and Africans and their descendants, the slaves and their descendants, could uh, begin to participate as free people in our American culture, they began to offer their interpretation of American music and American lyrics and American chords 
uh, or European European American versions of these things, and of course European American rhythms. And the way they interpreted these things was different. It had elements of a more African kind of approach. And so that is what has made American music unique since, you know, the the uh, the popularity of ragtime, which was a style created by African Americans and was sort of their riff on European American folk music and marching music and um, brought a different feel, a different rhythm. That's where this, uh, you know, swing feel starts to show up in the music. And that people loved it because you could dance to it. It was very danceable. And let me explain why it was danceable. And again, it's a combination of, of European American and African American. So European American music tends to focus on harmony and melody. If we think about classical music, um, the harmonies are sophisticated, the chord progressions, the uh, counterpoint, um, you know, and the the melodies, uh, the usage of notes, and we see a clear evolution of that. But in European American music, rhythm is not very evolved. It's very simple. Uh, again, there's not a tradition of strong rhythm um, until you get to a time in classical music where the timpanis showed up and, um, you know, the bass drum and the snare drum, which were uh, elements from marching music, actually, that were adopted into classical music. But even then, these elements are still rather muted in a classical music kind of a setting. And the rhythms are pretty simple. And if you look at, you know, the evolution of, of military music, which definitely had drums and was drums were more prominent in military music because they were louder uh, and they were originally used to communicate to soldiers on the field or in camp, all the different things they had to do. If, but yet these rhythms are still very simple. It has forward momentum because you want to get people either to walk, march, or to to dance. Of course, rhythm you know has has been around, but the rhythm is very simple and it's very straightforward. So you could say it's a walking rhythm. African rhythms. And rhythms from other cultures, Indian culture, for example, uh, these the, these cultures looked at rhythm in much, much more complex ways than Europeans did. And they adopted rhythm, uh, especially, say, in Africa, as a much more essential part of what was happening in the music. So often the rhythm and the complexities of the rhythm were as big of a part, if not a larger part, than either the melody or, you know, chords, for example, harmony. Um, So rhythm played a very big part, and interpretation of rhythm, the way rhythm was felt uh, in African society, was much more complex. And so when African slaves and their descendants began to apply their interpretation of rhythm to European musical conventions, that's why we get so much really cool um, European, uh, American, I should say, American music and the way that the music feels. So if you think about ragtime, you think about early jazz, you think about... um, be, you know, big band swing in the 1930s and bebop and uh, um, uh, early rock and roll in the 50s and funk and uh, rock music uh, and now hip hop today. All of these 
combine this idea of European American and African American together. Uh, and it's a reason, you know, so, so, okay. So before we, we jump too much into that, why, what is it about the character of this music that makes it so appealing, right? Because as I've mentioned many times before, American popular music, which is a combination of these two kind of concepts that sometimes clash, sometimes work together, you know, it's sort of a, can be a fractus relationship. What is it that makes that music so appealing? And why is it that all those styles that I mentioned always seem to get exported around the world and people love them? And it's my belief that, and I talked again a lot about this in the Throw Up Exercise podcast about Pulse, that this unique American Pulse has two elements to it. The first is a forward momentum that I that I mentioned um, European music has and many styles of music have, but it also has a, a swing to it and it has a laid back factor to it. And that is sort of the African-American contribution, if we're just talking in terms of rhythm. So the throw-up exercise, this exercise that I talk about extensively with my students and in this this other podcast, uh, episode 355 on Drummer's Resource, is has the, the sort of contradictory elements of forward momentum while also being laid back. It makes you tap your toe, but it's also chill and makes you feel cool. If you think about hip-hop, has that aspect to it. If you think about jazz, has that aspect to it. If you think about um, funk music, yes, it's very driving, but it also has this kind of cool factor. It's kind of um, got this contradictory thing. And this is something very unique about American music, and it is there in so many ways. Whether it's a jazz ride pattern, whether it's a shuffle pattern, whether it's straight eighth notes. And I talk about sort of, you know, these drummers in the British Invasion who were listening to American music uh, because America had staged itself for World War II in the UK and remained there through the duration of the war as a staging point to go onto the continent to fight the Nazis. And so the Brits were very exposed to American styles of music and had been for a while already, going back to the 20s. But during the 30s and especially through World War II, the first half of the 40s, um, you know, they were they were hearing all kinds of amazing American music. And that continued after the war. So that generation of youths, um, John Bonham, uh, Ringo Starr, Charlie Watts, and all of the compatriots in their various bands, Rolling Stones, Beatles, uh, Yardbirds, The Who, Black Sabbath, Deep Purple, I mean, you name it. Like, all the bands that came out of that time were listening to American music and were loving that feel. They were they were hearing, uh, you know, jazz music, 1930s, big band swing. That's what was popular during World War II. After the war, they were hearing things like Louis Jordan and Jump Blues. They were hearing... Um, uh, bebop evolve. And then, of course, they were hearing early rock and roll that evolved out of jump blues and, and rhythm and blues. And so they were surrounded by this stuff. And someone like John Bonham, and I did a two-parter on John Bonham, but he was not a trained musician. He didn't take lessons, but he was hearing um, elements of, of Max Roach. You can hear uh, in, in all of his Moby, Moby Dick solos, those long 15, 20-minute solos he would do, you can hear 
um, he, he quotes, literally quotes a Max Roach solo called The Drum Also Waltzes. You can hear Gene Krupa in his playing and his usage of the tom-toms and his choice of the size of his drums. You can hear uh, the influence of Little Richard music as, as evidenced by his usage literally of a two-handed kind of flattened out shuffle that is at the heart of Led Zeppelin's rock and roll. Um, you know, the song Rock and Roll. That famous John Bonham intro is literally note for note taken from a Little Richard song called Keep a Knockin', which came out in 1956 when John Bonham was in his prime early years. So, you know, it makes sense that this music swings, and it makes sense that we see how people in other cultures across the world were really compelled by all this different music because it was super danceable, but super laid back. At the same time, it was, it, it allowed... You know, the thing about jazz and about rock is that it has this element of improvisation, which is a very American concept. Um, freedom, you know, to say what you want to say, when you want to say it. It makes sense that music that allowed you to improvise, to say what you want, uh, evolved in America. Um, that is jazz, and it would go on to become rock, soloing. Today, rapping, you know, people are still expressing themselves and being an individual in the music is... A, a, a major part of what growing up in this society is all about. So people are expressing themselves and their freedom within the music, whether it's, you know, like I said, jazz on a, on a saxophone or, or you're Louis Armstrong and you're scatting, uh, or, you know, you're, you're a rock and roller and you're, you know, playing on a guitar, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, a lot of these kind of ideals have now spread throughout the world to other cultures. So America's not the only place where improvisation is happening, but um, that's always been a big part of our popular music, and I think that's another reason why people love it, is that they can sort of vicariously let, let it all hang out when listening to all this kind of music, and that's another re- reason why it's appealing. But to get back to the groove, the pulse, what I call the American pulse, that's what's got to be happening in your right hand, and, or you know, your main timekeeping hand. Um, and, and, you know, it's, we sit down and we learn, and most of the time when people learn that, they don't have any idea that everything I'm talking about is, is behind it, you know. But it, 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 you must start to understand that, and if you do, it will really enhance your timekeeping abilities in terms of the way you throw down eighth notes on a hi-hat or the way you play, you know, quarter notes on a ride or eighth notes on a ride. And again, just to quote John Bonham for a second, because he, you know, I use when the levee breaks, the famous Led Zeppelin song opens with a great, Led, you know, John Bonham groove again. I use that as an example with my students to demonstrate how the throw-up exercise translated from jazz musicians into, um, you know, into the world of rock. In that, if you listen to when the levee breaks, John Bonham, first of all, People don't ever listen to the hi-hat pattern, right, on that opening groove. They listen to the kick and snare, which are really beefy and laid back and have this droppiness to them, and it's, it's cool. Uh, but what they're not usually not paying attention to is the hi-hat. And the hi-hat is kind of the magic that holds the whole thing together because the hi-hat is very, very driving. So you have this driving, very consistent hi-hat, and it just sits on top of the rest of the groove. And I, in my John Bonham podcast, I actually made a bit of an error because I didn't know at the time, or I 
didn't remember at the time that when he recorded when the levy breaks when the the band recorded that they were in the this 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 english country manor called headley grange and john bonham was being recorded in the in the foyer the front room which is a huge open room with only three microphones and so there wasn't a way to adjust the hi-hat they were essentially one was near the bass drum and there was a couple of overheads and um that performance there was no way they could adjust you know oh let's turn up the hi-hat let's turn you know turn up the kick uh you couldn't adjust the individual drums and so when you listen to it and you hear the hi-hat just cruising along over the top of the groove it's pretty amazing because that's actually the way he was playing it and it has that american pulse to it that drive that has forward momentum it's driving but at the same time it's laid back so i talk a lot about this with the a podcast about the throw-up exercise. I get more into the technical details of that. And also, um, you can watch, um, there's a Drumeo live lesson that I have, which is called The Evolution of Timekeeping. It really, I think I should have, in hindsight, called it The Evolution of Pulse. I will put um, the link to that as well. And then you can see me demonstrate a lot of these kinds of things there. I just want to give a couple case studies of what I'm talking about in terms of why it's important or why it's beneficial I want to talk about a couple of the students that I've had over the years, specifically in the last few months, actually, um, who have benefited from the throw-up exercise hugely, even though they were not jazz drummers or, um, you know, played anything remotely like this. Um, First one is a a student I've been working with. I was just in Russia, as I mentioned, and uh, I have a student out there who's actually in one of the biggest rock bands in Russia. The band is called B2. Uh, in Russian, it's called Bitva, and um, they are uh, literally. We were driving past the Enormo soccer stadium where J Lo is going to be, and Pink, and all these different folks. And all of a sudden, I see B two up on the up on the giant video screen as we're driving past the stadium. It's one of those stadiums that holds like you know eighty thousand people. And there's my student, like twenty feet high, you know. Um, the face of, of all the, uh, the faces of all the band guys, but he um, has been studying with me for about a year and a half on Skype. He doesn't play jazz. He doesn't play traditional grip. He has no desire to play jazz. His band does not shuffle at all. And yet, what he has—he's completely blown away by what we're doing in the lessons. And when I went out there to Russia, we, he sat down with me, and we did a two-hour interview that he conducted with me. Um, because in his opinion, what I've been doing has totally changed the way that he plays, has brought so much more, I guess, feel to it, humanity to it, um, swing to it, pocket to it. Uh, and he's very, very interested in all the technical side of the things that I teach about. And, um, so we had this great two hour interview in in Russia, and I played some stuff. And what's cool about that is that a lot of Russians are not very good English speakers. So, um, you know, there was a translator there, and uh, all this stuff is going to now be available to to Russian drummers, which is which is great because probably a lot of Russians wouldn't be able to listen to this podcast. But what I'm saying is that's one example of a drummer who you know is has really benefited from. The understanding, particularly of that throw-up exercise, uh, or, or of this idea of swing or 
feel, just letting things breathe more, having more of this kind of laid back approach while you're, you're driving forward. And also he was injured when he came to study with me. Um, he, his hands were really stressed out, um, from, you know, it's a pretty hard hitting band. He does a big five minute solo in the middle of it. And now he's playing faster, better, cleaner, um, and without any pain. Another example, uh, I had a, a young woman that I met at the NAMM show last year. Her name is Julia. I won't give her last name because I don't know if she has, if she would give me permission, but she is a, a metal drummer. Um, and she's been featured on Drumeo uh, and is, is quite an amazing metal drummer. And um, we got to talking at a Sabian event. Uh, about all these issues and she's someone that's just very open and interested in learning about a lot of different types of drumming but again you know she plays really extreme metal everything is to a click everything is fast and she wrote to me after our lesson she came out to new york for some other stuff to to see some bands and and whatever and she took a lesson with me and after one lesson she wrote back and said man that was like one of the most impactful lessons of my life so um Probably in a little while here, there's a punk punk drummer who's going <laughs> to come for a lesson. You know, it, it's not about that you have to play f- any certain kinds of styles to benefit from these things that I'm talking about. The idea of s- this forward momentum, laid back, letting um, the arms and legs drop, which I'm going to you know talk a bit more about when we talk about the hi-hat. And, and again, about the bass drum um, and allowing, you know, allowing things to happen rather than forcing things to happen, thinking about space. Um, all of these all of these things are present. Uh, and that idea of the throw up exercise, again, we're throwing the stick, but we're also allowing it to come back up and come back up to its fullest potential before we throw it again. And that that idea of throw up is you know, how you get the forward momentum and you also get the laid back factor. And if you can bring that to what you're doing, whatever style of music you have, it's a, it's a, it's a very useful tool in giving your music that human quality, that appealing quality that we talked about that they're trying to capture with, with drum machines by beginning to quantize. Anyway, let's move on to another one of our limbs. And again, um, Let's think jazz for a second, and then we'll, we'll, we'll switch to rock. But the idea of the hi-hat. So if you are learning jazz, or you're learning shuffles, or you're learning the blues, and you're combining either the jazz ride pattern with the hi-hat, if we step back historically, the hi-hat, sort of that chick on two and four, ding, check, ding, check, ding, check, ding, really like established the backbeat before there was the two and four in rock and roll. So, you know, we didn't go boom, bap, boom, boom, bap. Uh, that heavy two and four backbeat really wasn't there um, until the 1950s. But there was a sense of two and four, and it fulfilled the same function that the, uh, that the backbeat on the snare drum fulfilled, but it was done on the hi-hat. So um, if you think about bebop music or jazz music, there's that two and four that you hear on the hi-hat all the time. Now, when people go to learn this music, they are just told, play your hi-hat on two and four, and not why, where does that come from, or how. 
You know, so what ends up happening is when they try to lock it in with the jazz ride pattern, ding, check, da ding, check, da ding, it ends up being like pin the tail on the donkey is the analogy I always use, meaning they sort of take a stab at pinning the two and four to the ride symbol pattern, but they've got a blindfold on and they may get there. They may make it sometimes. They may not. Sometimes they put the the tail on the donkey's ear. Sometimes they put the tail on the donkey's stomach. They don't get it in the right spot where the tail should be. So, ding, check, ding, check, ding. So the idea is that the 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 hi-hat should act as a backbeat, should act as an anchor. And in order for it to do that, it, we need it to be very heavy and to feel it drop. And if you, again, if you listen to old jazz recordings, say some of the classic jazz recordings from the 1950s, I talk about Art Blakey a lot, but really it's in a lot of jazz. And what you find is that the hi-hat is very loud in the mix. Uh, and again, it's like the Bonham thing. You don't, you know, they didn't have the ability to mic each instrument separately, turn things up and turn things down. So what you're hearing is a very heavy drop of the foot. And in essence, the drop of the foot in jazz is equivalent to the drop of the backbeat on two and four on the snare drum uh, in rock. And if we kind of couple that idea with the forward momentum of the drive of the throw-up exercise and allowing the stick to come back and giving that open space. And we drop the hi-hat each time that throw comes down on the throw up, or at least on two and four, we could begin to ground what we're doing, ground it. And uh, this idea of dropping is something I talk about a lot, allowing things to happen, the drop of the limbs. Um, Certainly with the throw up, we want to throw So we're not dropping there, we're actively throwing, but at the same time we're getting out of the way on the up and just allowing that thing to open up. But um, dropping, and and, and by dropping, you know, people, what that the the way they think about that is they like let go of the stick or they open up their hand and they let their grip go. That's not what I mean. What I mean is letting, feeling the weight of your limbs, whether it's your, you know, leg with the hi-hat or your leg with the bass drum, um, or your arm with the backbeat, uh, you know, your left, your left arm, your, your snare drum hand, um, thinking about letting things drop. And that's, to me, part of this idea of pulse or pocket or swing is certain things are driving, other things are dropping. Certain things are offering forward momentum. Other things, we're thinking more about how we lift them up and let the just the weight of our arms and legs fall can provide us with these big beefy sounds without any effort on our part or with very little effort or less effort um and i i think something that drummers are always trying to do is to control everything control how we come up how we come down we're filled with tension we're forcing the stick to come down and what ends up happening is a lot of times if we, if we play that way, like I've actually tried to, with my students, lift your arm up and let it fall as you're playing and doing it in a way that's in time. So you're lifting, say, the eighth note before if you're playing rock, or you're lifting, you know, just before if you're playing jazz. And this is true with feet, with hands, uh, that, that students are fighting against me. They lift earlier. They're pushing their hand down. If we're always throwing the hand down early, 
or throwing the hand down, we often get there early, several milliseconds early. This is called shaving. It's a term that a lot of drummers refer to. You're shaving a few milliseconds off. You're always getting there early. So now all of a sudden, your pocket, your swing doesn't have a bottom end because you're always rushing and getting there early. I can't remember what drummer I was listening to just the other day, but I was like, yep, everything's just that little bit early and nothing sounds settled and nothing sounds good. And if we can, again, you know, remember that gravity is a perfect force. Remember that our limbs are these heavy things that can just drop. And if we think more about how we can lift them up and allow them to drop in a controlled way, of course, not just randomly, we can begin to open up and develop more of this sense of swing, more capture the sense of pulse, capture the sense of, of bottom end to what we're doing. So I think I'm going to leave it at that for today. I know some of these some of what I talked about today is very conceptual, and I have talked about certain of these aspects of things in, in other um, other podcasts. But I think it's just really important to drive home this message that we have to, you know, we have to continue to think about what exactly are we doing? How are we moving? How are we thinking about how are we moving? Are we practicing how we're moving? Or are we just so obsessed with getting, you know, patterns down that we don't ever bother to stop and think about the way we're moving or the way things feel or the way they they sound. These are extremely important intangibles that are very hard to kind of um, to nail down. But like I said, the more I've been teaching over the years, the more that this is what my studies with my, my students is all about. It's about subtle movements and lifts both in the feet, I've been getting into a lot of cool stuff with the feet, with rock and roll, a lot of cool stuff um, in general, where small movements and really focusing in, breaking exercises down to smaller and smaller movements, where we just think about when do we lift, how do these things move together, another concept I talk about a lot called interdependence, how can we get two things to come down together? We have to get them to come up together. And how can we get them to come up together so that they're either dropping together or sometimes they're moving in opposite directions, one coming down with the other coming up, but it's all timed and working together. So the body is working as an intricate machine. Um, so anyway, uh, enough said for now. If you have questions, of course, hit me up. I'll be happy to try to explain further or send you to some other resources that I've done. Definitely check out the Drumeo um, the uh, evolution of timekeeping live lesson. You can actually see some of this stuff put into place and, uh, you know, keep thinking about swing and how you're swinging and keep trying to understand who were your heroes? How did, who were their heroes? What was influencing them? How did they, you know, do what they did? Try to dig in a little bit deeper and you'll find that it's going to help you to open up your own swing, your own sense of groove of pulse, all these uh, different ideas. So for now, I thank you for tuning in to the Daniel Glass Show right here on Drummer's Resource. Keep swinging, and we will check you out next time. Peace. Peace.